Okay, today is March the 23rd, 2010. We have another day to grow in grace and knowledge. Don't forget that our popcorn night, Friday night at the movies, here at Country Bible Church is scheduled for this Friday. If any of you have any DVDs that are cartoons, you know, the type, the good old type, like Tom and Jerry or, um, what's the, what was the guy's name? I mean, the big rooster's name. Um, yeah, Foghorn Leghorn or uh, Sylvester the Cat, Woody Woodpecker, any of those classics, any of them. If you'll bring them, we'd appreciate it because the kids come here and some of the movies are not exactly their cup of tea. But if we have a little something to begin with, like a cartoon, I think they would enjoy themselves more. And I know I used to enjoy them. When I was a, a young lad, my parents would take my sister and myself to the drive-in movies. And they always had double features and they would have cartoons. We had a night watchman that had a steel factory right across the street from us. And when we left to go to the drive-in movies, he would tell us, don't worry, I'll take the place, uh, I'll, I'll check the place and keep it safe while y'all are gone on vacation. He thought that because we were loaded up like we were going on vacation. We were just going to drive-in movies. But we had things, you know, just everywhere. So, uh, Okay, let's prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, an opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness in giving us another day. This is a grace day. We don't earn or deserve it. But You've given it to us and all the blessings and all of the opportunities and challenges that go with it. We're so thankful that everything depends upon who and what You are. And all we have to do is get on the grace train because it is a wonderful place to be. And You have provided everything, including this portion of Your mighty Word this evening for our blessing and benefit. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight is going to be pretty academic. So I thought I would start with a bit of levity to kind of get you relaxed because the rest of it is going to be pretty intense with regards to concentration and so forth. Maybe some of you have heard this. I got it on the Internet. I mean, uh, from an email. It says, uh, praying for Leroy. Anyone with needs to be prayed over, come forward to the front at the altar, the preacher says. Leroy gets in line, and when he gets his turn, the preacher asks, Leroy, what do you want me to pray about for you? And Leroy says, Preacher, I need you to pray for my hearing. And the preacher puts one finger in Leroy's ear and places the other uh, hand on top of Leroy's head and prays and prays and prays up a blue streak for Leroy. A few minutes later, the preacher removes his hand, stands back, and asks Leroy, How's your hearing now? He said, Leroy said, I don't know, Reverend. It, it ain't till Wednesday. 
I'd like to see that on the Nut Channel someday. You know, it's Channel 12 on the one I have. Okay, if you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to continue tonight with verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Now, if you've got, if we've sent you the notes through the, uh, on an email attachment or whatever, this is um, the last part of page 13 is where we're going to begin tonight. Now, we've already covered uh, a lot in this, in this passage. However, I've changed some things. I went over here and went back and changed some things. So if you, uh, I told Carrie to send this out to everyone. If you have the old notes, just put them into cyberspace somewhere, and then you'll have these. These are the updated, um, new and improved, I hope. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. You can also look up here if you'd like. For they themselves, this would be the Thessalonian converts. Remember, Paul and Silas and Timothy went into Thessalonica and they evangelized the people there. They stayed long enough to train them and then they moved on. They had to move on because the Jews were about to execute them. They had to go to the next town, which was Berea. When they got to Berea, they had some really good listeners. We should all be good Bereans because the Bereans, when they heard what Paul was saying, rather than scoffing and running them out of town, they looked to the Scriptures to see if what they were saying were, was true. And sure enough, they, most of them recognized that it was. And they were only there for so long. And then the, the Jews that were upset with them in Thessalonica heard they were in Berea. And here they came and ran them out of Berea, but they were about to leave anyway. So this is what they're talking about. That's the they. They themselves, <clears throat> the Thessalonian converts. Well, this isn't the Thessalonians. Let me explain. This is the converts. These people are the converts of the original Thessalonians who were evangelized by Paul. You see, this part of the indigenous method, and this is the way you want to handle witnessing to others, what you do is you give them the gospel. Once they hear the gospel, they've accepted the gospel, you continue to train them, you continue to give them the nourishment that they need, and you train them to do what you did. And this is what the Bereans, I mean, the Thessalonians did. They went out to the people in their area, and there were people coming to them. Remember, Thessalonica had a, a seaport, and it's on the Ignatian Way, a land route through there, so you had people coming to them. They would, they would witness to them and teach them to do what they did, or what Paul and Silas and Timothy did to them, and that was witness to them. Probably they were telling them, look, instead of just telling somebody a lot of facts, why don't you start asking some questions? I don't know that they said that, but I think it's the most effective way of witnessing. Because when you, when you start talking to someone about spiritual matters, a lot of times they'll tune out. They, they don't know who you are, and they might think you're some, one of those uh, people that they've seen in t on TV that were raising their hands and making a fuss and look like a bunch of fools, and they say, I don't want to hear it. They don't know that because when you start talking about something spiritual, they might disconnect 
Many times it happens. But if you continue to ask them questions, they can't disconnect. They are forced to listen to what you say. The ball is in their court and they have to respond. And the way they respond is going to help you to go to the next phase of your witnessing. You'll know more about what they need to hear. What is their background? Are they religious? Have they ever heard of Jesus Christ? Are they atheists? Are they legalists? What are they? I just thought I'd throw that in because this is what we need to do when you, when you convert someone by giving them the accurate gospel. You teach them to do what you did and let them know it is their responsibility to go out and do the same thing. And that is the witness. You all know, I hope, that every one of us, every believer, not just pastors, not just evangelists, not just missionaries, every one of us, have the responsibility to witness. We are ambassadors for Christ. Where would you go to find that? Where's the verse? One? Oh. How about Second Corinthians chapter 5? Remember, we just went back by that not long ago. God is reaching out to the masses by who? By us. He uses us. We'll get to that in just a moment. For they themselves, the Thessalonian converts, report, they keep on reporting, present tense, about us, what kind of reception we had with you. That is the Thessalonians. In other words, they were giving a report. They were telling Paul and his travelers, that would be the, not the Thessalonians, but their converts, about how they went into Thessalonica and witnessed and started a church. What did that mean? It means that it meant that the Thessalonian believers had done their job. It was all over the place. They had gone out and spread the word. He says, and how you turned to God from idols. Now, I have in red from, this is the Greek word apa, A-P-O. And I'm not going to handle it just yet, but just keep it in mind. It's in red for, for a reason. I'll get to it in a few, few moments. And they turned to God from idols. What, do, what, what was the significant thing that we pointed out about this when we were going over this the first time? Remember? It's the order that is very important. They did not turn from idols to God. That's not what happened. They turned to God from idols. And that means when, the, when these missionaries went in, they didn't make a big deal about the idols. They didn't have to. When they gave them the gospel, they gave them the truth, they automatically turned from the idols because they accepted the gospel. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Savior. And so some of the things that are going to be following picks up on that particular aspect. To serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we're going to go fairly quickly through most of this because we already went over it, but it doesn't hurt to review. According to Peter, Second Peter, y'all remember that? For they themselves, we already went over that, that's the converts of Thessalonians, to report, this is angelo, A-P-A-N-G-E-L-L-O. It's a, a verb, it's a present active indicative. It means they were responsible to do it and they would continue to do it, which they did about what kind of reception we had with you. I'm not going to go into all that because we've already gone over it. 
and how you turn to God from idols. There's that word from again. Apa. And this word turned, it's epistrepho. There's the active indicative. You know, whenever you turn from something, if they're over here and they're worshiping idols, to turn from it, you have to go this way, don't you? And what were they doing to the idols? They turned their back on the idols, didn't they? And they turned to God. And so, this is, this is you, you can't have it both ways. You can't be worshiping idols and turn to God at the same time because the very act of turning means you're not, you're not looking at the idols anymore. You're not worshiping the idols. Your back is toward them. But something had to be done before they made the turn, and that was what? They had to change their mind about Jesus Christ. And so that's the issue. When you're talking to an unbeliever, they might be in all types of error, sin, immorality, they may be an atheist. Who knows what they may be? Uh, they may be living uh, a, a very sinful life. Uh, today, unfortunately, probably over half, I would say most of the younger people especially, are living together and they're not married, which is absolutely uh, condemned by the Bible. So they're living in sin. But if you're going to an unbeliever, or a couple who is an unbeliever, and they're living in sin because they're not married, the last thing you want to do is make an issue of that. Because that's not the issue. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. You give them the gospel. And as they believe the gospel, after that, then you continue to train them. But you don't make their sin the issue. Because the issue in salvation isn't sin anyway. Jesus Christ took care of the sin problem. The issue is now Jesus Christ. What do you think of Him? And then we went into what uh, J. Vernon McGee said in Through the Bible, and that's where he's the one that made the, the point that I thought was a good one. They turned to God from idols. They didn't make an issue about turning from idols. They made an issue about turning to Christ. And these are some other things. I don't think we need to go through these. We need to, we've got a lot to cover. And then we went through, we spent some time here. Some allege that if a man doesn't turn from his sin, it is because he's, he hasn't turned to Christ. There's a lot of theologies out there that subscribe to this. And of course, we know that that isn't true. Now, when you believe in Jesus Christ, well, by the way, what are you when you believe in Jesus Christ? You're a sinner, aren't you? Everybody agree with that? You're a sinner. What are you after you believe in Jesus Christ? You're still a sinner, aren't you? You're a saved sinner. Now, there's a lot of things that took place. There's a lot of things that change that God has done on your behalf. But you don't automatically start executing the Christian way of life. You don't even know what it is. If someone asked you uh, the, the moment after you were saved and they said, what do you think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What would you say? The what? That person was baptized by the Holy Spirit. Every believer is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. But they don't know it. So, my point is, you don't have to turn from anything. You don't have to know, really, anything other than 
Jesus Christ saved you from your sins. And now you're depending on Christ and His work rather than your own work in order to be saved. That's how much it takes to be saved. As far as turning from sin, that may or may not happen. Usually it happens for a little while unless a person starts getting some training and understand how to acquire the filling of the Holy Spirit and that his body is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and get some training what he's supposed to do, what he's not supposed to do, and so forth. They'll just fall right back into their old mold, their old wheel ruts. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. We already spent a lot of time here, but uh, that's where we were. Now, they turned, <clears throat> they turned to God from idols. And you see that from again in red? I'll get to that in a moment. Just hang in there. And idols is uh, adolon, E-I-D-O-L-O-N. It's a noun. It's a genitive, plural, neuter. It's an image or idol, a statue, a farmed object that is worshipped. It comes from idos, or ados, which means to see, external appearance to be visible. And that's what people want. They want something visible. It's been that way from the dawning of the ages. It's always they wanted to see something that is physical. And sometimes if they hadn't made a statue or an idol, they would worship something that already existed. Usually it was the sun or the moon, the stars, something. Because they, they had to have in their... Uh, for their faith, in their system of faith, something to see. And when the Apostle Paul went into these pagan cities and there was visible icons everywhere, and he said, I worship the invisible God. What do you think they did? Yeah, right. We've got a hundred gods and all of them are visible. But you say the unknown or the invisible God? Well, they had an unknown. Un- unknown. Even the unknown God had a had a monument. So that's what they turned from. Demon activity is associated with idolatry according to Deuteronomy 32, 17, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 20. We had a PowerPoint on it. I'm not going to take the time right now. But it's not the idol is nothing. It's, it's just wood or stone or whatever. It's not the idol that has any substance to it. And when a person worships an idol... It's not the fact that it's the idol that is the big deal. That's not really what they're worshiping. They're worshiping the demons behind that idol. And we saw that in those two verses. Now, are we going to deal with from yet? From is apa, idols. The preposition, a preposition is used as the source of identification. The new, the new converts were no longer identified with idols but we're now identified with fellow believers. I think I have this somewhere. Do I need to go back? Let me turn this off so y'all won't get dizzy. Y'all think y'all are playing a slot machine here before long. Let's see. There's a from up here that I... uh... Okay, yeah. I didn't go back quite far enough. It's just as well I have you thinking about that from Apa here. <clears throat> In this sentence we have, For the word of the Lord has shouted forth from you. That word is Apa, A-P-O. And so I'm dealing with that word down here now. 
This is a preposition which means out from the source, and it's used three different ways. First of all, the first way is source of identification. One is identified with some outfit or group or whatever it may be, and that is their source. In other words, let's say that you were a Jehovah Witness, and you were, uh, what, what do they call the Jehovah Witness thing? It's a Kingdom Hall, the Kingdom Hall. So if they were, if you came upon a Jehovah Witness, uh, he might say, uh, you might ask him, well, do you go to church? And he might say, well, no, uh, I go to a Kingdom Hall. So did you hear that? From a Kingdom Hall. So he's identified with the Kingdom Hall, which means he's identifying himself as a Jehovah Witness. That's one way that apa or from is used. Another way is the ultimate source or far source. Ultimate source means ultimately it's from this source, but you don't get to it immediately. You'll see what it means as I give you the, the uh, definition here. Something or someone can be tra- uh, traced back to the ultimate original source. It is in this way, in this verse, that the new believers that Paul came into contact with could be traced back through the Thessalonian believers all the way back to Paul, who was the original source of their gospel. So it's not something that is an immediate source. When these converts from Paul's converts in Thessalonica, and it may go several layers deep, maybe a a convert from uh, that Paul actually talked to, made a convert, who made a convert, who made a convert, who made a convert, and that's the one that Paul ran into someplace traveling around Macedonia or Achaia. And when he says, I am from, what? From Paul, that he's the original source. See up here when it says, "Our for the word of the Lord has sound out forth from you. Well, it, it started with them, but what was the ultimate source? Paul. Actually, the ultimate source was the Holy Spirit giving it to Paul and then through Paul. But in this context, that's what it is. And then the, the last way it's used is the near source or immediate source. This source is immediate and apparent. No research or, or tracing is necessary. These are the three ways that this word is used. And we're going to see how it plays out. And then we're going to see later on another word that is used for from. And you have ek which is the one that the word translated from in some verses that are coming up. And here we have the word apa, A-P-O, and both of them are translated from. I told you you have to concentrate. I see a lot of washboards out there. You know what a washboard is, don't you? Up here, wrinkled. Okay. From idols... Okay. Now, to serve. To serve here is the Greek word uh, duleo, duleo, and it's an infinitive. Infinitive means when you have the word to, T-O, and then you have uh, a verb. It's a verbal, actually. It's called an infinitive. And it means to serve, to be a slave. It is a derivative of the noun doulos. Y'all remember, y'all, most of y'all are familiar with that, which means servant or slave. It's important to notice that this word is in the present tense and not the aorist tense, which means that serving is not a one-time endeavor 
or an effort made every once in a while. It is a present, ongoing, day-to-day effort on the believer's part. It's a responsibility. Where would you go in the Bible to demonstrate that we should be producers of good, divine good? Anybody have an idea? Ephesians 2.10 is a good one. Yeah. We were created unto good works. Good works means service. But there's, as we're going to see as this continues, you need something before you can be a good servant. If I said fill in the blank, it could be more than one answer. But the one I would be looking for is knowledge. Uh, there's a lot of people out there trying to serve the Lord, and they're trying to do it in ignorance, and it is absolutely futile. That's why we have to grow up in Christ in, in, in grace and knowledge. The reason that these believers were able to serve is because of what is said about them in verse 6. Look at this. Having received the Word. Look in your Bibles at verse 6. You see that in there? Having received the Word, that is why they were qualified and capable of serving. And it's the present active participle. No one is ready to serve until they know how to serve, which requires knowledge of Bible doctrine, including eschatology and prophecy. There's some people who think, I can't be bothered about eschatology, things to come, or prophecy. Uh, there are a lot of kooks running around that have all kind of weird old type prophecies, and that should not deter you in the slightest of having a great interest in prophecy. I go every year in December to the pre-trib conference in Dallas, Texas, and that's all about prophecy. I, I can't see how anybody would not be interested in that, but there are those who aren't because it's, we're talking about history, only it's future history future history that you're going to be a part of. And for someone to nod off during a prophecy conference, well, I, I take it back. I nearly nodded off one time. This guy would bore the paint right off the wall. He was so monotone. And this is my message, and I will give it to you, and you will like it, or maybe you will not like it, but I will never change my tone. It will be this way for the next hour. And, you, and he just went, oh, no. And it was real funny because one, he was an older gentleman, and at one point, he was wearing one of these things like this, and it got uh, kind of crossways to where this part was over here by his ear. And someone came up there and had to fix it for him. And he said, well, I'm sure glad somebody fixed that because I was about to put myself to sleep. And everybody just nearly cracked up. So you have to be prepared. In fact, they were to be imitators, weren't they? Imitators of... The, the church. They were to be imitators of also who? God. And what, what did that mean? The aorist the participle always has, to, always has to precede the action of the main verb, which means this part in verse 6 means that they had to receive the word before they could be imitators of God, which is the main verb. Do I need to go back to verse 6? Are you all good to go? Uh, well, let's, we're going to have to go there. No, that's all right. It's an wait, wait, wait. It's the aorist participle, and I pretty, I'm pretty sure that it is the passive. But let me go back here and look. Let's see. Here's verse seven. 
Well, I can't go back there. Uh, Bidel, do you have that up? You look at verse 6. Yeah. My notes only go back to verse 7. Okay. We're looking up uh, to receive. Yeah. Is it, what is it, present? What is it, up? Uh, is it passive? Uh-huh. Oh, deponent? Okay. Uh, deponent means that it is, it is passive in form but active in, in actuality. So it is an active, active voice. Uh-huh. Okay. Y'all remember where we are now? <clears throat> Somebody tell me. I got to look. What verse are we on? Verse nine. Okay. Now we we already went through this. A a he refers it to a living and true God. But the reason I didn't like the the sense that it said a living and true God because we know there is only one living and true God. So I would think it would say the. But I checked the Greek, and it is no, uh, uh, there is no definite article there, which means you would translate it a living and true God. And I think the reason they did that was because they are contrasting um, idols which were dead and false god, uh, false gods, with a living and true God. We went over that already. Now, verse ten. This is when it's going to start getting very interesting. And the reason is because we're going to start talking about the return of Christ. In fact, in First and Second Thessalonians, it is loaded with references to Jesus Christ's return. I'm talking about what we would call the rapture. And there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of different ideas about when that is going to take place. And even in our verse 10 right here, we have something that is going to indicate when that is going to be. It's not the... Uh, it is not the silver bullet that will convince everyone of when Christ is going to come, but it's certainly part of the information you need to know to identify when He's coming. And it, why is that important, by the way? Is it important to you to know when Christ is coming? I think most of you would agree, yes, He's coming back, because we know that He said He was coming back. And where might you find that? There you go. <laughs> I wish you could see y'all's face when I ask you questions like that. <laughs> but I'm going to keep asking them because we're weak on bibliology and we need to get stronger. That's the way to do it. Right. He said he was coming back. If I go away. First class conditional clause. And I am. Okay, so verse 10. And to wait for his son from... There's that from again, only this time it's the Greek word ek. From heaven whom he raised from, uh, again, uh, ek, the dead, that that is Jesus who delivers us from, again, three times in this verse, ek, the wrath to come. Well, so we'll take it a bite at a time in verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven. We have the word to wait is anameno, that's A-N-A-M-E-N-O. It's an infinitive and... <clears throat> It's also a hypoxlegomena, 
that means it's only used one time in the Bible. Hapox is one legomena word, one word, one time. It's a present active infinitive, and it's a compound word. Ana, A-N-A, means to stress something or to emphasize it. Plus, meno means to wait. So it's an emphatic uh, word for to remain or to wait. Why were they waiting for Jesus to come back? Because He said He must go away, but He would return. So, I asked you a while ago, did you know any verses? Uh, we came up with one, but here are a few others for you. If you. I don't know if you're taking notes or whatever, but this is a good place to jot them down because I might ask you to go again. What are, what's some substantiation to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back? You see, a lot of, probably most believers would agree, yes, Jesus Christ is coming back. But we need to not only know what we believe, we need to know why we believe it. And what do we base our belief system on? I hope you all get this one right. The Word. The Bible. And so that's why it's important for us to be able to go at least to a few of these places, to demonstrate this is what I believe and this is why, because that's what the Word says. That's where we need to get to. And most of you are already here. You know why you believe, I mean, you know what you believe, and you know why you believe it in a theoretical sense or in a paraphrasing sense, but you can't connect it to the verses in the Bible. We all, including myself, need work on this. So that's why I'm giving you these verses. So if uh, this is just on sound and nobody has it, they can't look at this, I'll just run through them. It's John 7, 33, John 13, 3, John 14, 2 through 3, also John 14, 2, 28, John 16, 5 and 7 and 10 and 28, Acts 1, 9 and 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, 2 Thessalonians 2.1, Hebrews 9.28, and 1 John 3.2 are a few of the verses where the Bible substantiates the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. If He's not coming back, then we all need to go somewhere else on a Tuesday and Thursday night and including Sunday because we're just spinning our wheels. This is a Greek word for waiting, which includes the sense of anticipation or expecting. It's not just waiting. Okay, Sarah, Sarah, I don't have anything else to do. It's an eager anticipation. What word did we go over Sunday that had something to do with this same sense? Prosdakao, remember? Sometimes it's also used as waiting, but it's an eager anticipation. In fact, the word Anomeno is used one time in the Septuagint. That LLX is just a symbol for the Septuagint. Everybody knows what the Septuagint is, right? Okay, if you don't raise your hand, I'm pressing on. I'm not going to tell you what. Okay. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. It was made by 70 guys. That's where the Septuagint means uh, 70. They translated it as even before Christ was born, they had the Greek Bible. So I went to the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and looked at Job chapter 7, verse 2, and it had that word. This is the only place 
that the Septuagint has anabino. You see what I'm saying? Anabino is only used one time in the New Testament, and that's in our text. In the Old Testament, in the Greek version, you know, that's the Septuagint, it is only used one time in Job 7.2. As a slave who pants for the shade, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, is the same word that we have here on and to wait for his son. Now, does that tell you something? How many of you have a cavalier, nonchalant attitude about being paid your wages? Anybody? Most of you are front and center, and the full attention is there when you're talking about someone who owes you money. Is that not true? Eagerly awaits for his wages. As a slave who pants for the, sh- for the shade. That panting is a similar type type word. It's, it, it's panting. You just can't wait to get to the shade. You know, I played uh, football in various schools, but when I was in high school especially, uh, <clears throat> we had a gridiron out there. And one thing you might notice, there's no trees around a gridiron, gridiron football field. And we would have what they call two-a-days. We would work out two times a day in August. August. And the heat was unbearable. And you see some football teams doing that now, but they're doing it in shorts. And sometimes no pads at all. Sometimes they'll put a, a um, shoulder pads on. We went with full pads in 100-degree weather. And not just running around. We were hitting one another. I mean, we were scrimmaging. Try to do that in 100-degree weather. In 100-degree weather, just walk outside in Texas southern heat, and you'll get the idea, but just put pads all over yourself, and then walk out there and start exerting yourself, and you'll see that you know what you're going to be doing? Panting for the shade. In other words, it's only thing you can think about. And I think that's really a great illustration of this word. So it is anxiously anticipating the rapture, Jesus Christ to return to take us home. Now, I'm going to have to tell you right now, whether you like it or not, some of you may not like it, some of you may, I don't know. I think there is a wrong-minded spirit that goes out among believers to some degree. And that is because we don't know the day or the hour when the rapture is going to occur. No one knows when it is going to occur. That they ignore some of the verses that we're going to go over right here. Um, And that you may have hear it uh, couched in words of this sort. Well, you know, the the rapture could occur today or it could occur a thousand years from today. And that just puts me on edge. I understand. I'm not saying that the rapture is going to occur today or tomorrow. But to say that it might not even occur for a thousand years, I think, is ignoring the sign of the times. It's ignoring all of the things that must take place before the tribulation begins. See, nothing has to happen before the rapture occurs. There is nothing that has to happen. But there are things that have to happen before the tribulation begins. 
And if those, all this whole list of things that have to happen before the tribulation begins is already set and in place, and we're, the, the world is just, just tinkering on destruction as far as I can tell, what is one of the things that have to happen before the tribulation begins? Israel has to be in the land. Now, why is that? Because the tribulation begins with the Antichrist making a treaty with who? Israel. That's Daniel chapter 9. And so, if there is no Israel, if the Israel is not back in the land, they're still scattered out all over. And there is no Israel, how can there be a tribulation? How can the Antichrist make a contract with the people that don't even exist? And the, by the way, that's a big one. Anytime somebody wants to ask you, well, you believe the Bible, why do you believe that? I mean, how? It, just say, just look at Israel. All the promises, all the prophecy that has gone towards Israel has been, has been um, not all the prophecies, but many of the prophecies have already been fulfilled. And I could go on and on about uh, all the prophecies that are already taking place in our day and time with regards to Israel. Now, there's no prophecy regarding the church, no prophecy at all for the church that has to be fulfilled, but there is prophecy that has to be fulfilled for Israel even during the church age. If you have any questions about that, go to our website and see Israel Regathered. But just for starters, the diaspora... Israel being destroyed in 70 A.D. is heavily prophesied in the Old Testament and it happened uh, 40 years into the church age. Something to think about. Okay, so what, this is my gripe. I, we don't, we're not date setters. And we're not saying that it's going to happen this month, this year. We don't know exactly when. But if you say it could have happened a thousand years from now, you know what it fosters? It gives you the idea that well, if it's going to happen a thousand years from now, why should I be concerned about it? How can it motivate me in any sense? Because I'm, going to, I'm not going to be here anyway. And we just saw, was it Sunday, went, in, went into 1 John 2.28. And the verbiage there is, if he returns, talking about Jesus Christ. Not when he returns. It says, uh, He's, he tells the children to keep abiding in Him or, or it. Remember, we had a distinction there. Because when He comes is what the translations say, but it should be if He comes. Third class conditional clause. Y'all remember that? And that doesn't mean maybe He's going to come and maybe He doesn't. We know He's coming back. It means if He returns in our lifetime. Even then, they were anticipating Christ's return. It's a big deal. And if you say, oh, well, yeah, the rapture, well, well, you know, it could happen a thousand years. Don't. They simply say, don't worry about it. And the Bible says, you don't have to be worried about it, but you better be thinking about it. How can it be a motivation in your life to fulfill God's plan for your life, for you to grow up spiritually and make a difference if you don't even think you're going to be around? In other words, let me put it this way. We can't know this, but hypothetically, if we knew for certain that Jesus Christ was going to return this year, would it make any difference in the way you're living your life? Huh? What if it was this book? Huh? 
How many believers would be in here with their Bibles open, leaning forward, if they knew that Jesus Christ was certainly going to return this year or maybe even this month? Don't you think it would make a difference? But when you have the attitude, oh, well, you know, about a year from now, that's just not genuine. That's not dealing with reality. We are to be alert and see what's going on around us. We're not going to go uh, sell everything we have and go put on a sheet and go stand under a tree somewhere and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready. doesn't mean that. But it should be a motivating force, a drive in the way that we live. And that can only be if Jesus Christ could return even this very night. And it was that way for the first century church. So let's look at a few verses. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You get the gist? It's not like, well, yeah, it might happen. It's eagerly awaiting. First Corinthians 4, 5. Wait until the Lord comes. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await or eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You get into the gist of this? Eagerly waiting? 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. This is Paul speaking. On that day, what is that day, by the way? What day is it? <laughs> the judgment seat of Christ. That's the day. You know, I mean, yeah, we the rapture has to take place first. Then what? We're all going to be evaluated. Stand before Jesus Christ. What are you going to do if Jesus Christ says, uh, "Let me ask you something. You had uh, seventy years on earth. How much? How much of that time did you spend thinking about my return?" What are you going to do? Oh. Most people should not be expecting the crown of righteousness because they could care less when Jesus Christ returns. In fact, we talked about this last time. Instead, a lot of people rather put it off if they can. Don't come yet, Lord. I've got to get married. Oh, boy. Uh, if somebody tells you that, tell them, we need to talk. Or, I want to have a baby. I want to get that job. I want that new boat. Or whatever it may be. Do you think that people, if they were really truthful, wouldn't say that? You know they would. I just hope it doesn't fit home too hard. So in the future there is laid up for, uh, up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. How can you love His appearing if you don't ever even think about it? And I'm telling you that anybody, I don't care what kind of believer they are, uh, 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 go to church every Sunday and they know eschatology and everything, if they tell you, ah, oh, well, you know, the rapture, it could happen a thousand years from now, they're not eagerly awaiting the rapture. How could they? Maybe they have 40 years left. If they think, well, it might even come to 40 years, well, maybe right towards the end I might get serious. Maybe not. I don't know. You want the crown of righteousness? 
what do you need to do to get the crown of righteousness? Now, don't say anything. Just think about it. Formulate it in your head. What do you have to do? What's the first thing you have to do? Oh, okay, let, let, let's, let's crank it up and see if anybody got some ideas here. What's the first thing you have to do if you're going to get the crown of righteousness? What is the first thing that must happen? Anybody? Right, all right. Now we're on track. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that qualify you that now you're automatically going to get the crown? No. Why not? Hmm? You're righteous in Christ. That's true. But the righteous, we all are righteous in Christ because we have His imputed righteousness, right? But because you have imputed righteousness, does that automatically mean you're going to get the, the crown of righteousness? No. See, the Lord, uh, uh, God imputes His righteousness to us because He imputed our sins to Christ. What kind of imputation is that called? It's a judicial imputation. Good. So, what is it? We have to believe in Jesus Christ. And then what did you all say? What did we come up with? You have to know something about Him, don't you? How can you love His appearing when you are ignorant about anything about Him? Right. Second Peter, right? 3.16. Pardon? Well, do you want do you do you want to see him come back more now than you did before? What were you excited about when he came back? What were you anticipating? I mean, if you're excited, you're anticipating something. Okay. How about? Were you anticipating any rewards or decorations or judgment seat? Did you know anything about the judgment seat of Christ? Yeah. See, uh, it's, most people would say, oh, yes, I would like to have Jesus Christ, uh, you know, come back and I'd like to see Jesus. And there's a lot of people that are very sincere in that, and it's not a, it's, that's not a bad thing. But in order to, uh, uh, to acquire the crown of righteousness, which is a decoration or reward, it takes more than a desire. You understand that? It takes knowledge. Part of the thing is the fact that when you understand that there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ and every one of us, we're going to stand before Jesus Christ, if we've learned how to execute His plan, if we've learned how to do it correctly, and we do it, if we learn the book and we also live by the book because we know the book, What's going to happen is automatically there's going to be something that's going to develop inside of us, and that is a not only a desire, but an eager waiting. But it doesn't come automatically, because you know what happens as you learn, and you learn that there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ, and there's going to be people who are going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, and there's only going to be a few believers who are actually rewarded with crowns and decorations and rewards and opportunities and privileges. These are going to be held, held, held out for certain people. But I'll be honest with you, when I heard about the judgment seat of Christ at first, I was not a happy camper because I thought, oh, man, I've got to stand before. Now, you have to keep it in context. Stand before Jesus Christ is not, does not have anything to do with your sins. You understand that? 
Your sins have absolutely nothing to do with your standing before Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Why? They've already been judged. What about unbelievers? Surely their sins must have a part to play. Is that right? No. How do you know that? Where would you go to prove that unbelievers are not judged according to their sins? Where would you go? Yeah, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 and 13, two times it says they're going to be judged according to their what? Works. Not their sins because Christ took care of their sins on the cross. Now, when you start getting this message out, when you start talking to people and they say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so, they uh, fell off the wagon again and they got drunk and they beat their wife and also, well, there's no doubt they're going to hell. You might say, oh, really? They might be going to hell, but it's not because of their sins. And see what happens. Be prepared, because you will be attacked. They can't stand that. But that's the truth of the matter. So, if you're going to eagerly wait for a Savior, in the sense of acquiring crowns, decorations, privileges, and so forth, you have to have some knowledge, don't you? Even to begin with, if you heard the gospel to begin with, and you understood that Jesus Christ paid for your sins, what is that? That's knowledge, isn't it? But that's not enough knowledge to receive a crown or decoration. That takes a lot more knowledge. And so I'm just trying to put it in perspective. And now, here's how this impacts us. I think if I said, does everyone here believe that every believer is going to stand before Jesus Christ, I think all hands would go up. I believe that you understand that. But if I ask this question, which I will not ask because it's none of my business, are you going to be ready? Are you going to be eagerly anticipating Christ's return because you know what's next is the judgment seat of Christ? Where do you stand in that particular place? Are you eagerly anticipating Christ because you know who He is and you've been executing His plan because you know His plan? Paul said that he was eagerly anticipating the crown of righteousness. And he said that it's going to be a water to everyone who loves Christ's appearing. All I'm trying to do is help you see that loving His appearing with reference to the context of this verse, which is crowns, which is the decoration and all, it takes knowledge. Because only ones that are going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ are those who are going to fulfill the mandate of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then we have Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you looking for it? I'll tell you what, the older I get the more anxious I am for Christ's return. Because this whole world is getting worse. It is not getting better. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can solve our problems. Our world, our country is in such a demise and such a horrible mess. I don't think anybody can unscramble those eggs. I think it's going to take Jesus Christ to come down and rule with a rod of iron and straighten the whole mess out. And I'm looking forward to it. 
Why? You see, this is the motivating force. When you realize that when you're with Jesus Christ, you're in a body that has no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. You can go vertical. Wouldn't y'all like to go vertical? No taxes, no mosquitoes. No keys, no locks. Well, I'm looking forward to it. James uh, 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Just relax. It's okay. He's coming. He's coming for sure. In the meantime, be patient. I think this also means, like I said before, we're not to take this to an extreme. Some people I've heard say, well, let's go ahead and buy that furniture. Let's go ahead and buy that boat because by the time we pay it off, Christ is coming. That's not being patient. But we are to recognize that this is a motivating force. We have two present active infinitives, to serve and to wait. This is telling them that they were not to sit around shirking their responsibilities, but were to actively serve the Lord while awaiting His return. They had the desire to please the Lord, but it was an anxious anticipation of His return that motivated them to serve Him. So if you believe that the Lord is coming, and He may be coming soon, it is a motivation to get on the ball because time has a way of just making us all procrastinators. I'll get serious about this some other time. And what is it that is a huge deterrent to us fulfilling God's plan? We went over it last Sunday. Remember? The details of life. The details of life, all these responsibilities, all these duties, all these chores, all these things that you have to do can squeeze the life out of your spiritual life. And you have to make a conscious decision. I'm not going to allow that to happen because the spiritual things are what? Eternal. And the visible things that we can see are temporal. They're not here for long, including us. From heaven. I'm going to close on this. I'm already uh, past time, but let's let's get this word right here. It says that... Get back here. And to wait for His Son from heaven. I'll have to deal with this ek next time because I'm going to wait till I finish this whole verse. And your translation says from heaven, and the Greek word is uranos, O-U-R-A-N-O-S. It's a noun, genitive, plural, masculine. Did you hear that? Plural? Why didn't they translate it heavens? It's plural. It means heaven, sky, or air. Notice that this word is in the plural and should be translated heavens. Jesus had to pass the first and second heavens to get to the third heaven when He ascended, so He'll have to pass through them again when He returns. That's why it's heavens. You know, there's not one heaven. There's three heavens. The Bible speaks of three heavens. You have the atmosphere around earth, which is the first heaven. You have the celestial sphere with the stars and planets and so forth. That's the second heaven. And the third heaven is the throne of God, where God resides. And so that's why there should be heavens instead of heaven. And they didn't translate it that way. Uh, This last thing, I'll close on this. Notice that the believers in Thessalonica were waiting for the Lord's return, the rapture. If there were certain things that must take place before His return, which would prevent Him from returning during their lifetime, certainly Paul would have informed them of that fact. You get the point? 
They were waiting for Christ's return. They thought it could happen at any time. And Paul didn't say, oh, now, wait a minute. There's no need for you to be anxious about the rapture, about Christ's return, because such and such has to happen first. The great tribulation has to happen first. Such and such has to happen first. He didn't correct them because it could have happened then. And if it could have happened then, it could happen now. It should be important to us. We should be anxiously anticipating Christ's return. Because when He returns, we'll see Him as He is. We will be like Him in a resurrection body. And it's going to be wonderful beyond our wildest expectations. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that You've given us opportunity to feed upon Your Word. We thank You for maintaining the integrity of Your Word. We pray that You will help us to recognize the importance of learning and applying Bible doctrine. The importance of growing in grace and knowledge so that we can eagerly anticipate Christ's return even to the point to where we can look forward, maybe even to crowns and decorations. All because of Your grace. No merit on our part. It's Your grace that enables us to do any of it. So we thank You for this and pray that it will be a motivating force for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.